after listening to the droning voices of the Pharisees, and all of a sudden, here comes a guy who's just real, a man who is authentic, and he's presenting what sounds like brand new truths, but really not necessarily so. Many of them are founded in the Old Testament. But Jesus comes and he begins presenting a totally new concept, and that is this concept of his kingdom. He comes with a new message like they'd never heard before, so much so that on one occasion, or more than one occasion, people said, we, we've just never heard it like this. We've just never heard a man speak like this man speaks. He's so, it's like he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Isn't that refreshing? I feel sorry for you, but it's refreshing when a preacher actually sounds like he knows what he's talking about. But um, the king comes to expose a new culture, not to simply impose a new list of commandments. Matthew was inspired and attentive enough to be able to record one of those teaching lessons, those hillside homilies and the Sermon on the Mount. And who better to define the kingdom and its purpose than the king? That's why it'd be so neat to hear Jesus teach this lesson, this message. He's depicting Jesus as the king of the Jews, Matthew is, and uh, here he is capturing the picture of what that looks like, this wise and benevolent king sitting with his many followers and revealing to them, this is what my kingdom is going to look like. This is what this is going to be about. So we see, first of all, the sermon of the king. I took a class in homiletics, and they said that every good sermon had to have a proposition or a theme. So I raised my hand. I said, what does a mediocre sermon need? <laughs> they didn't answer the question. The proposition of Jesus' sermon is clearly summed up in uh, verses uh, 17 through 20 as he talks about true righteousness. This is the theme contrasted to the so-called righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. This emphasis on true righteousness cast a shadow over them and what they had been teaching, the hypocritical self-righteousness of the Pharisees. Can I tell you something? Self-righteousness is not righteousness. It isn't. Only the righteousness that Christ brings to our lives and affords to us is true righteousness. So that's the, prop the proposition. He wants to present what true righteousness is all about. Secondly, the purposes of this sermon is to instruct his followers as to the concept of this internal righteousness, as opposed, again, to that of the self-righteous Pharisees. The Pharisees were so focused on external acts of righteousness that they failed to com comprehend the truth that righteousness starts on the inside and works its way outwardly. They tried to make their followers righteous by highlighting the outward activities of religion. They thought that controlling a person's activities would make them righteous people. They thought righteousness started outside and permeated or worked its way in. Jesus comes along, he says, nope, here's the new concept. He wanted to describe the spiritual principles that he would use to govern the lives of his people. 
because his kingdom is spiritual. Can I ask you a question this morning? Do you know the king? That was weak. Do you know the king? How do we hope to experience the kingdom culture and the kingdom concept when we fail to understand he is our king? He's our Lord. He's our governor. So what he says needs to be priority. Jesus wanted to relate his message to the Old Testament law. Jesus wasn't interested in debunking the Old Testament teachings about righteousness, but instead he intended to connect them to the teachings of his kingdom. And he will balance. He'll walk the balance between Old Testament law and New Testament kingdom concept. Here's some problems that are contributed to the Sermon on the Mount. Now understand, I'm not talking about problems with the sermon. The sermon is perfect because the king delivered the sermon. The word of God himself delivered the word of God. Isn't that amazing? The word made flesh to dwell among us delivered the word of God. That's why it would have been so refreshing. He was just talking about himself. He was telling us what he was going to be in our lives. But here's some problems. Number one, it's applied to nations instead of individuals. The teachings that Christ will proclaim are for individual lives. This is not an exclusively a Jewish message, although the Old Testament law was exclusively a Jewish law. It was a Jewish concept given to the Jewish people to show them the way to Jesus, to show them or to teach them. Paul said it's a schoolmaster to show us our need of salvation or our need of grace. The Old Testament Jewish law was a national law, racial law for the Jews while it was religious. The New Testament, on the other hand, is a kingdom of individuals who can have a personal relationship with the king and thereby and therefore embrace and emulate the king of righteousness. Secondly, it is applied to the unsaved when it's not a message to the unsaved. It's for believers. These are kingdom teachings. You've got to be a part of the kingdom to begin to grasp the concept. The first step in becoming a kingdom citizen is you got to know the king, okay? But we apply it as a list of rules to try to make unsaved people be good. Can I tell you what unsaved people do? They sin. That's what sinners do. They sin, right? Shake your head this way. Anybody know one? Yeah, yeah okay, you're aware that that's what they do. They are not, no matter how much they try, they cannot achieve righteousness. Why? Because righteousness is not achieved. Righteousness is given to us through our relationship with Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. He is our righteous king. So, it cannot be applied simply to um, the, uh, rather to achieve uh, through righteousness. Thirdly, or fourthly, it's applied to the millennium, known as the kingdom age. It may have some dispensational meaning, however... 
Jesus did not intend for his kingdom to be postponed until a future day. Even John the Baptist said, repent. Why? For the kingdom of heaven is here. It's at hand. A chapter later in chapter 4, after John had taught that in chapter 3, in chapter 4, Jesus preaching the same message. Repent. Why? The kingdom is at hand. Why was the kingdom at hand? Because the king had come. Wherever the king is, the kingdom resides there. He is our king. Okay? So both character and conduct are dealt with in this sermon, but ultimately the kingdom concept, the kingdom culture is what's being promoted. Secondly, not only the sermon of the king, but the, the spirit of the kingdom. Now, we're going to enter this phase, uh, what we have come to call the Beatitudes. The word Beatitude is not necessarily found in your Bible, okay? But it means blessed or blessing, okay? And please understand, whoever had it right, these are never called do attitudes because they're be attitudes. If what you're trying to do is act like a Christian, I implore you this morning for the kingdom's sake, stop acting and start being. Amen? That's the problem. Too many people want to act like a Christian. Well, what in the world does that mean? Ultimately, I can't act like a Christian unless the king lives in me. He must govern my heart. So I must be. Have these attitudes. It means blessed. Deuteronomy chapter 11 shows us that even in the Old Testament, living under a blessing was a choice. I want to read this scripture to you. Deuteronomy eleven twenty six. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. I'm giving you a choice. I'm setting before you a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commands of the Lord your God that I'm giving you today. The curse, if you disobey the commands of the Lord your God and turn from the way that I command you today by following other gods which you have not known. You can be blessed or you can live without the blessing which in and of itself is a curse. How many want to be blessed? Can I tell you how to do it? Live the Beatitudes? No. Nope. Know the King. And in knowing the King, He will begin to produce in you, by His presence, these attitudes. Okay? There seems to be a progression in these verses from a sense of sinfulness to a kingdom relationship with God. Let's look at them, beginning with verse number 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is our attitude toward our salvation, for theirs is the kingdom. It all starts there. Blessed are those who are impoverished in spirit and are willing to admit that they need more. Have you ever come to that point in your life where you just said, Lord, what I have is not what I need. I need to know the king. This poverty of spirit is essential in our approach to God, and only the Holy Spirit can produce in us this awakening. 
We don't come to Jesus simply by a mental ascent. We come to Jesus through a convicting of the Holy Spirit who draws us to his kingdom. Okay? There are those who believe they could deserve or could almost be good enough if God would just help them a little bit. If God just helped me a little bit, I could go to heaven. But the attitude spoken of here is one of complete and total bankruptcy of spirit until we do not have so much energy or arrogance as to lift our heads in his presence. That's what Jesus is talking about. I am bankrupt in spirit. I'm empty. I'm broken. I'm nothing. I am not worthy. If you came to God to enter his kingdom in your hand and said this is why I deserve to be a part of your kingdom you missed it but if you came to him and said I'm so unworthy I'm, I'm a sinner kind of like the publican and the Pharisee the Pharisee said oh let me give you my resume God I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I possess. I don't cheat on my neighbor. I don't cheat on my taxes. I do everything by the book. Meanwhile, there was an old publican, a sinner, kneeling over here, beating on his chest and said, God, I'm not worthy. Be merciful to me. I'm just a sinner. Jesus gave commentary. He said, that man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The other had already justified himself. You can't save you. If you can justify who you are and what you do apart from the king, you're missing the kingdom and you don't know Jesus. I am just a sinner. I'm broken, I'm empty, I have nothing impressive to give you, God. I have nothing to bring simply to your cross, I claim. The poverty of spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, what, is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those, verse 4, who mourn, for they shall be Comforted. This is our attitude towards sin. If there's a sin for which we are not sorry, then that's the only sin for which we cannot be forgiven. If there's a sin that I'm not sorry about, I must mourn in my spirit. Now, you may have come to an altar of prayer. You may have been sitting in a cafe. You may have been riding in a golf cart at the beach or at the golf course when the Holy Spirit convicted you. And you may not have wept bitter tears, but in your spirit, you were sorry for your sins. And you repented. You had this attitude toward your sin that I don't want anything to do with this any longer. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. We use that for people going through times of grief in their life. But when you keep it in its context, it's not so much talking about grief in our lives as it is grief over our sinfulness. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? Because when we re 
we repent, what does God do? He sends the healing presence of his Holy Spirit to take up residence in our lives. And then and only then we are truly comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is our attitude toward self. Blessed are the meek, not defensive. A right attitude toward oneself, not flaunting or proud. This word humble is interesting. I started to say, but humble and without pretense or hypocrisy. Humility, if we're not careful, it can be one of the things that we're most proud of. <laughs> you know? And that just doesn't make any sense at all, does it? I'm so proud of my humility. It doesn't even sound right, does it? It just sounds crazy. But yet there are people who are so proud of what God has done for them that all they can do is take the credit for it. If what you have in your life that you call Christianity, you can take credit for, then God didn't do it. Hmm. Blessed are the meek. I knew a man so humble one time that he wouldn't even shine his shoes. <laughs> I used to be a part of a subculture within the kingdom that if you weren't careful, you'd measure a person's humility by the length of the mustard stain on their black tie. You know what I'm saying? not it guys whenever I understand that I have to give up me blessed are the meek I'm unworthy blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness good news for they shall be filled this is our attitude toward God this hunger and thirst after righteousness reveals the true character of a person. It's easily, easy for us to falsely accuse people of being hungry for God, isn't it? When in reality, if they were truly hungry for God, what happened? According to the kingdom, if you're really hungry for God, what? You get filled. God's not interested in you starving to death spiritually. He's interested in filling you. And if you have a little bit of a hunger, God wants you to pull up to the buffet of grace and experience all that he has in his fullness for you. I see this varying as a very revealing statement about us. If we're really hungry and thirsty for God, we're going to be filled with God. And yet I see so many professors who never feed on the bread of the Word of God. And they say, I'm hungry for God. Well, eat. One thing you'll never accuse me of is being hungry and not eating. I mean, just take a look at me. You know that's true. Except liver and onions. If that's all you got, thanks, but I'll, I'll fast. <laughs> it's called convenient fasting at such a time as this. Anyway. 
In our culture, we pretty much get what we want. If we're hungry for a cheeseburger, we go get one, right? If we want a taco, we go get four or one. <laughs> Unless you're like, yeah, me, you get numerous tacos. Here's a tragedy that I observe sometimes in kingdom culture. And that is, as Christians, we don't go after God as fervently as we go after tacos. Are you hungry? Are you really hungry? Here's the good news. If you're really hungry for God, you don't have to fast long. You're going to be filled. This tells me that God is more ready and anxious to fill us with himself than we are to be filled. He's sitting on go. We're the ones who are working up an appetite. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. This is our attitude towards forgiveness. Forgiveness is a characteristics or a characteristic of Christians. Because we have been forgiven. Jesus said, if you go to the altar and you realize there's problems between you and your brother, you go take care of that. Leave your gift. Don't pray. Don't waste your time praying. Go make sure everything's forgiven. If it's on their part, you live peaceably with all men as much as you can. Make sure there's no unforgiveness. Because, here's what I fear. Mercy is one of the greatest descriptive terms for God in the Bible. Mercy. And you know how long God's mercy lasts? Anyone want to take a guess? His mercy endures forever. We're real tolerant in the church. We'll give you three chances and then you're out. You know? Three chances and then we're going to judge you and write you off. I don't think so. For kingdom subjects to be like the king, we will be moving toward the attitude of forgiveness that the king had Toward us. Again, some of this goes back to our view of salvation. If we consider ourselves to deserve God's forgiveness, we might consider not forgiving someone who has sinned against us. Anybody here ever had somebody sin against you? They hurt you. They cut you. They wounded you. One person. Wow, this is a great crowd. Y'all don't get out much, though. Uh, <laughs> I'm just saying. One person actually admitted, yeah, I've had somebody hurt me. I've had somebody wound me deeply. Have you ever prayed something like this? God, I know I should forgive them, but I'm struggling. Have you ever confessed to a friend? I know I should forgive them, but you just... I don't know what they did to you. I know this. If you think somehow that they have to deserve your forgiveness. You don't understand forgiveness. Amen. You don't understand it. Somehow, 
You think forgiveness is based on performance. It isn't. Forgiveness is based on the attitude and the willingness of the forgiver. I've had to forgive a few people in my life. Can I tell you something? Every time I've ever forgiven someone, it cost me something. It cost me. I had to be willing. As they, I guess you would say, I had to be willing to eat it. I had to be willing to give up my right to hold a grudge. You don't know what they did to me. Can I, can I be as transparent with you as possible this morning? Without being unkind, I don't care. <laughs> you killed God's son. Oh, I didn't. Oh, yes, you did. Your sins were just as representative or represented there as were the sins of the Roman soldier who nailed him to the cross and the sins of the Jewish leaders who caused him to go there. You don't deserve forgiveness either. We don't forgive because we deserve, we for, or because they deserve. We forgive because we have been forgiven. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart. This is our attitude toward godliness. Purity of heart always shows up in purity of life. Did you know that whatever's in your heart is what comes out. That's what people will see. That's what people will feel when you're engaged in conversation with them. As we grow in our relationship with the Holy Spirit or with the King, the kingdom principles permeate our lives and we begin to resemble the King. The more that He takes over, the more that He takes control, the more we become like Him. We have to surrender. Lord, I surrender. I need a clean heart. David said, create in me a clean heart, O God. And do what? Renew a right attitude in me. A beatitude of purity of heart and life. Blessed are the peacemakers. Now, if you'll do a study in Scripture, you'll find out that many times when we're instructed on this concept of purity of heart, we're also instructed on this concept of peacemaking. I heard this preached in the holiness church that I grew up in all my life. Hebrews 12. Follow peace with all men. And holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. Y'all didn't hear that first part, did you? I didn't either. All my life growing up, I heard this, you got to be holy, you got to be sanctified. You gotta, if you don't get up here and get sanctified tonight, you're going to die and go to hell tomorrow morning. How can saved people die and go to hell? I don't, I don't understand it. That was what I heard. But nobody ever preached a whole message in my church on follow peace with all men. Can I tell you something? You can't have a pure heart if you don't know how to pursue peace with people. That's not purity. If you're always on the outs, <laughs> I don't even know what the outs is, but that just sounds funny. No. If you're always on the outs with people, you may contribute to the problem. 
I'm just saying. I've pastored long enough and been in church all of my life. I think I was born there. They said it was Marion, Indiana. But I'm pretty sure I was born in the Westland Church in Summitville, Indiana. At least I cut my teeth there. I know that. All my life, been in church. And I have experienced that the people who always had a problem, and they were always getting sideways with somebody in the church, sometimes it was one or two people, literally, that always had an issue. Now, it was with different people in the church, but these two somehow always were involved. Amen. That's good preaching on Sunday morning, even if I'm the one doing it. I'm talking about following peace with all men. To live above. With saints love, won't that be glory? but to live below with people we know. Now, that's a different story, right? Follow peace with all men. Follow holiness. They go together hand in hand. Peacemakers. Blessed are the persecuted. This is our attitude toward trials. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's, that's a key component right there. For righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil things about you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. There's three things I want you to notice. For righteousness' sake, first of all. Secondly, for, make sure it's falsely. Okay, verse 11. Righteousness sake, make sure it's not just your own stubbornness that's causing you to get in trouble so often. Number two, make sure that when people say things about you that they're lying, it's false. <laughs> I used to have a motorcycle, and I'd ride it around. I loved, I still love riding motorcycles. And one of my parishioners got me this bright orange T-shirt. You can see it coming down the road. And this is what it said on the back. So when I would pull up to a traffic stop, people behind me got a sermon. This is what it said. Live your life so that the preacher doesn't have to lie at your funeral. Isn't that, good? Isn't that a message? That's a message right there. Make sure that if what they're saying is bad and ugly and mean, and make sure it's false. Just live your life purely, righteously, kingdomly. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Wow, y'all aren't listening fast enough this morning. We're, we're, listen quickly. We're going to get through this, all right? Spreading of the kingdom. Chuck Swindoll calls it shake and shine. I like that. We're compared to salt and light. Salt speaks of inward character and influences a decaying world. Light speaks of the outward testimony of good works that points people to God. People say, you can't judge me because you don't see the inside, you see the outside. That's right. That's all I see. Is what I, I hear your words, but what I see is not like Christ. Then I have to gather in my mind, you're not part of His kingdom. When you're part of His kingdom, you live like He lived. Hmm. 
Uses for salt. Salt arrests corruption. Before refrigeration, salt served the purpose of preserving from decay. Anybody ever have salted country ham? Ooh, just said it and my blood pressure went up. I just said that word and my blood pressure went up just thinking about it. Salty, man. That's how they used to always preserve their meat. Secondly, salt adds flavor, and it does. It adds flavor. I salt everything. Twice, three times. Salt everything. It adds flavor. You know what else it does? In adding flavor, it'll also arrest bitterness. You ever put salt on a grapefruit? It takes away the bitterness. My brother has been drinking coffee since he was about five years old. I don't touch the stuff. It's not of God. I'm telling you, it's not of God. It belongs right up there on those lists of abominable things like liver and onions. I mean, it's right up there. <laughs> I don't touch it. My brother's been drinking it since he was five years old. He was just at my house last week or a week or so ago. He put salt in his coffee. I'm like, what in the world are you doing? He said, it kills that bitter aftertaste. I said, I know how to kill that bitter aftertaste. Throw that stuff out in the yard and get you a Coca-Cola. I mean, then then you don't have that bitter aftertaste. But it adds flavor. Thirdly, it creates thirst. Creates thirst. You eat much salt, you find yourself wanting to have another glass of water. You're starting to get the concept of how the kingdom spreads. You are salt. You should arrest corruption, confront decay, but add flavor. Add flavor to this world. Create thirst. Uses of light. Light dispels darkness. My brother, I was talking to him about this sermon last when he was here. He said, light, light and darkness are combatants, but all the darkness in the world cannot extinguish a single candle flame. I remember being in, in Mammoth Caves in Kentucky when I was a kid. And they took us down in these caves, and it's cold, and they got lights, you know, up, and, the, and the guide said, okay, for just a minute, everybody take hold of the person next to you, and nobody move because we're going to turn the lights off. Turn the lights off. You, you couldn't literally see. If you hadn't been touching someone... You wouldn't have known anybody else. It was just that dark. In a minute, he lit a lot lighter. Just a little flick. And it was amazing how that light just kind of permeated all that darkness. Penetrated it. Chased it away. He said, we only had the lights off for three seconds, something like that. Seemed, seemed like a you know, 10 minutes. I mean, it was just like, get the lights back on, man. I'm smothering here. I can't, I don't know what's going on. That's what we're called to do. Dispel darkness. Not only that, light attracts attention. Not to ourselves, but to the one who gives us the light. To the kingdom. Dangers? Jesus said there are some dangers with salt. It can lose its effectiveness. The devil doesn't care that you're at church this morning. He just doesn't want you to be effective tomorrow out in the world. He doesn't care. He, he's, it makes no difference to him whether or not you're here this morning. What makes a difference for him 
is will the time that we've spent in his word this morning change you enough to make a difference in the world tomorrow? And if it does, then he gets upset. It can lose its effectiveness. And then it's good for nothing but just to be thrown down and trampled under feet. I, I grew up in Indiana. Most people say, that doesn't mean anything, just thrown out. No, 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 not if you live in Indiana. Even an ineffective piece of salt can have an effect. If you throw it on ice, it can help melt that. Throw it down. God's trying to use us, ladies and gentlemen. If he doesn't use us, it's not because he's not trying. It's because we are rendering ourselves less effective for his kingdom. Here's the sad and tragic about light. It can be hidden. It can be hidden. We can hide it under a bushel. Yeah, I'm, that's right. I'm going to let it shine. Without light. And the light shines through our good works. And when men see our good works, what do they do? They glorify our Father in heaven. If your good works bring glory to you, they're ill-founded works. Your good works ought to cause people to go, wow, what a God that guy serves. Wow, what a witness that lady is for her king. So here's the question. Closing. Does my life as a believer closely resemble, resemble this kingdom portrait? This is not a prescriptive message. This is not a prescription for how to be godly. This is a description. A description of people who are kingdom citizens. This is not a list of do's and don'ts, ladies and gentlemen. This is what you are if you're in his kingdom. Is it a stretch for someone to consider that I'm a part of God's kingdom? And does my life ever influence someone else in the direction of his kingdom? This week, my challenge, shake and shine. Shake the salt and let your light so shine before men that they glorify your Father in heaven. I want us to bow our heads. I know it's beyond the time. Before we go, I just want you to listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit. And whatever He says to you, start making preparations to do that. Start today. Father, thank You that You had such an amazing plan that included us. Thank You that Your kingdom indeed is come and thank you that you've given us this message of encouragement this morning from the king himself as to how our lives look when the king is in residence in them search us father turn on the searchlight of your spirit and of your word teach us to walk in your way so that your kingdom shines brighter and brighter. This old kingdom that we call 
the USA, we even call the world. It's decaying fast, which gives your kingdom a greater opportunity to be seen in the lives of your citizens. Thank you for the challenge. Help us to respond. In Jesus' name, amen? Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much.